Okay, the purpose of the book. The fall of Jerusalem and the fate of the captives uh, who are led into exile form the subject matter of the book of Lamentations. Uh, the book includes five poems. It's a very poetic book, very short book, uh, all which deal with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Okay, it was placed under siege uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, they, had, they drove them uh, to despair through famine and eventually took the city over. Uh, during the taking over of the city, King Zedekiah and a band of his soldiers tried to escape. Uh, during the night. Later they were captured. He had to watch his sons being executed in front of him. And then they took him uh, back to a Babylonian dungeon where he spent the rest of his life until he died. And so the fall of Jerusalem, we, we really have to understand what that was like to understand where the author was coming from when he wrote the book of Lamentations. So to really examine the final days of Jerusalem, uh, you have to understand the fulfillment of Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 4-5. He says, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land, cry aloud and say, Assemble yourselves and let's go into the fortified cities. Okay, so population of the cities increased overnight. People started fleeing to the cities, including Jerusalem, because um, that's where your safety was, was within the walls. That included nomadic tribes, some of which are referenced in the book of Jeremiah. So a city that was a very populous city to begin with all of a sudden becomes overrun with people who are expecting to be there for a short amount of time. So it, it created some logistical issues, lodging Okay, where are all these people going to stay? Well, if there's not a siege going on, then you can, you can have your tents, you can have your little shelters all around the city, not necessarily inside its gates. But when the siege began, they all packed up and headed inside looking for protection. So now they're in there trying to seek shelter, and there's people all over the place. All the rooms are filled. All the houses are filled. There's people that are trying to live in the streets, in the alleyways. Uh, the place is overrun, very populated. Fortunately, Jerusalem did have its own internal water supply. So they did have water coming to them, but they only had as much food as they had would normally keep stored. Okay, they weren't um, preparing for this necessarily. So they did have a finite supply of food that would run out. Also, they had a finite fuel supply. Yeah, you probably only have enough wood for what you, what you currently have the need for. Okay, so chances are the food would have lasted longer than the fuel because they had some things like um, nuts, berries, vegetables, stuff like that that you might not have to cook. But eating grain and flour doesn't really do a whole lot for you unless you, can, you have a heat source. Okay, so it would not be long before they were out of fuel. So this point is worth reading what the Lord told Ezekiel um, when he asked him to do regarding the coming siege of Jerusalem. So if we went to Ezekiel chapter 4, verses, uh, starting in verse 9, it says, But as for you, take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spell it. Put them in one vessel and make them into a loaf for yourself. 
You shall eat it according to the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days. Your food which you eat shall be 20 shekels a day by weight. You shall eat it from time to time. The water you drink shall be six part of a hen by measure. You shall drink from it from time to time. You shall eat it as a barley cake, having baked it in their sight over human dung. Okay, so people were cramming into Jerusalem's alleys, eating rationed food, drinking rationed water, cooking over their own excrement. By the way, you can always learn something new from Scripture. Did not know you could use human excrement as a fuel source. I'm outside with the diapers in the car trying to make, <laughs> trying to make ends meet. My wife explained to me it doesn't necessarily work that way, but I digress. All right. So, speaking of diapers, uh, what about garbage? Talking about logistics, this siege went on for at least 18 months. Okay, Walls closed off. What do you do with all the trash? Maybe some of it you could use to burn. Uh, maybe some you chuck over the wall. Uh, but largely, you start to see this picture of, of just a nasty environment. So what about hygiene, sanitation? Human waste. Okay, there's nothing. There's no going outside. How do you keep yourself clean? Utensils clean. Your clothes clean. Basically, everything starts to become rotten. And at this point, it's easy to envision what Jeremiah meant when he told the people that famine, pestilence, and the sword were coming. Okay, so you really have a recipe for rapid spread of disease. Smallpox, diphtheria, whooping cough, measles, any of those could and did erupt and pretty much would spread without any real way of stopping them. Okay, so that kind of brings us to the final logistical struggle. Uh, Corpses. It's 18 months. Just by nature of having that many people, there's going to be some people that pass over that time, much less living in those conditions. You hate to think about it, but it just adds to the level of deplorable conditions that these people are in. What do you do with the dead? Um, so, there's speculation we're not told specifically in scripture um, burnt sent out with the garbage used for food um, all those are considerations so eventually the situation in the city becomes very desperate food runs out um, why, why are we going into all this great detail to talk about uh, the conditions of this besieged city because the book of lamentation represents one person's coming to terms with the terror and horror that they experienced over that couple years. The last chapter of Jeremiah records the end of Jerusalem uh, when the food supply failed and Nebuchadnezzar broke through the walls. The war was quickly over. The survivors were packed off to Babylon and the poorest of the poor were left in the land. I so it's all over with now. The siege has ended. The walls have broken. The, the, the battle's taken place, and it's just everything is burnt. But best way I could figure out how to describe that was is you know the feeling that you had on September 11th, where you look up, where you're watching TV, you can't really take your eyes off of it. Everything's smoking. You're like, this is in our land. These are our people that got hurt, and it's just that pit of your stomach. Now imagine, as opposed to just being a building or two if it was an entire city and then you lived in that city and then within that city was a temple 
for God that was going to make his name great. Because all that's going on in Jerusalem, everybody's taken away and all that's left are the frail, thin, poorest of poor, probably disease-ridden remnant. And you're standing there in the midst of it. Through that, the author wrote the book of Lamentations after seeing all this despair. He saw women who were forced to eat their own children. And now he's, had, he's coming to terms with those memories. And most biblical scholars, as your notes uh, point out, that that was probably the prophet Jeremiah. Okay, so now, that's kind of the setting. Why, they call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. You know, why are you weeping? Well, if you've just gone through all that and you were forewarned as to what was coming, no one would listen to you, and then you've had to see what all these people have had to endure, you kind of worked up. You might lament a little bit. For those of y'all who take notes, write in the site, we don't have time to cover it tonight, write Deuteronomy 28 in the, in the side of your, your Bible there, and go back and read that when you have time. Uh, the parallelism, parallelism there, it, it's an amazing, um, it, it's more than a coincidence, okay? Just, just, just read 28, and, and it talks about the judgment that's going to come upon the nation. I mean, very often you'll see words that Jeremiah uses in the book of Lamentations that he has taken directly from Deuteronomy. So what he's saying is, here in Jerusalem... What just occurred is what we were told would occur in the book of Deuteronomy. And there's, there's a great deal of parallel between the two. Okay? And it wasn't just um, happenstance that it happened. It was a consequence of the actions that had been performed by the people. And this was due to their disobedience. All right, a little bit about the structure of Lamentations. We said it was a poem. How many of you know what an acrostic is? Any English majors or... We've got two or three? Give it a shot. It's weird. I think it has to do with either the Hebrew alphabet or something that you come down and it's easy to remember it's for the oral... You're all over. Don't, don't think your mind's slipping for a minute. You got it, brother. All right. Well, you held on to that. Anybody else want to elaborate on that a little bit? Like every line starts with the same letter, and then every isn't there some type of repetition? Yeah, and I and I tried to come up with some examples. I thought like ESPN, and you see the signs during the basketball games. Apparently, that's not an acrostic. That's an acronym, or yeah, an acrostic is different. It's a poetic thing. As an engineer, I don't know much about it, but I learned a little bit. Um, Scripture has depth. They, they're acrostics, which means each, each letter in the Hebrew, each, each line, each verse started with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Anybody here fluent Hebrew or know anything? In, know any Hebrew? How, how many Hebrew letters are there in the alphabet? Shalom. Y'all are weak. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, so the, the first... Verse and the first chapter would start with the Hebrew A. We'll go through verse two would start with the Hebrew B. We'll go through like that. So if you took it, um, 
and kind of did an English translation and carried the acrostic over and, and grabbed me a little bit of license here. Um, a, B, C, D, E. Alas, the city that was full of people sits alone. Bitterly, she weeps in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. Cast away under affliction and under harsh servitude, Judah has gone into exile. Desolation marks her gates. No one travels to Zion. Enemies prosper and have mastery over her. So you just kind of see this over and over again. It goes through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, That's an acrostic. Okay, Within each verse uh, in chapter 1, you have three related themes, three related thoughts that are connected together. So if you look at um, the first verse you'll see three connected thoughts. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Okay, so it's, it's three things that they're all tied together in kind of one extrapolated thought. Then you, you move down and then you have another series. So once you start looking to see how the author packed all these together, it does become very poetic. Again, some of it's lost when we try to do it in the English translation, but that's what was taking place over the 22 verses. When that first uh, letter was, I'll probably mispronounce it, was Elite. And the second one was B-E-T. Okay. And you go right there with Gimel. There you go. I no one here is going to call you out on it. <laughs> All right, very good. So, so you start to see that poetry that's taken place. Honestly, when I first saw that, I was like, "That's kind of warped." Right in the middle of all this, you're trying to do a. I mean, just to put that together. Okay, why would they want to do that? You touched on it earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. So by doing that, creating that, it's almost like a song. Okay, and you know what letters come in next, so it knows you what he's saying next. So, you know, this divinely inspired word is now easier for people to understand through future generations. Okay. Chapter two, very similar. Um it also has 22 verses. It is an acrostic. Um, it's also in triplets, which is what we talked about, about the three all kind of uh, going around a central theme. Uh, but there's a twist in chapter 2. If you were to write out the English alphabet, you know, I was going to do it, but I think you're all familiar with the English alphabet. And then you took two letters and transposed them. For instance, in uh, the Hebrew, it would be the U and the P. If you took those and transposed those, that's what he did in chapter 2. So again, you still have that A, B, C, that poetry, and then all of a sudden something is, is switched. Okay, so that when that sequence is, is changed, lots of different opinions on why um, they did that. Um, 
only he and the Lord know, but it would definitely draw attention to it because it's different than what you're expecting. So he's trying to point something out. Uh, it creates an imbalance. Uh, it could be the author telling us that things aren't right, that there has been a reversal of fortune. The accepted order is broken. We don't really know exactly what he was trying to convey to the reader, but that definitely uh, is there. It, it might be missed on us in the English translation, but the Hebrew uh, def- definitely see that. Okay, chapter 3. Do we have 22 verses in chapter 3? Yeah, we have three times as long. So what he does in chapter 3 is he goes to 66 verses. And we would say, uh, but he's still keeping with that acrostic. He doesn't go A through whatever in in the Hebrew alphabet. He doesn't do 22, 22, 22. He does the first one three times, then three times. So in an English rendition, that would look like affliction I have seen because of his wrath. Away from light into darkness he has driven me. Against me he has turned his hand all the day. Breaking my bones and wasting away my flesh. Besieging me with bitterness and hardship. Black and dark are the places in which I dwell. Okay, so that's how, that's how he does it over <clears throat> those 66 verses. And he does still keep that twist of the acrostic where those, those letters are reversed. Chapter 4, he comes back to 22 verses. This time, each verse contains two related thoughts as opposed to three. And again, the two letters are reversed. Chapter 5, the last chapter, again, has 22 verses. Each verse contains a single thought. And there is no acrostic pattern. Okay, so you can chart all this out and you kind of... It's really kind of be- in the midst of the book of Lamentations. It's really this beautiful structure of how everything uh, is put together. Uh, I won't go th- spend any more time on that, but talking about the, the chapters themselves, they each have their own themes, and the themes progress throughout the book. Kind of have a subtitle for each one of the chapters. If you look at chapter one, you can almost kind of refer to that as from the newsroom chapter. Okay, so Lamentations as a book flows from grief at arm's length to right up close and personal when you're right up into it. So he's starting a little further away. Okay, it's describing the events that took place in Jerusalem in a detached manner, um, almost like a news report would take place. So verses 1 through 11, really, if, if you read them, can almost sound like a news reporter who has empathy and sympathy for the scene, but is really just kind of showing up at arm's length talking about what's occurred. Okay, Verses 12 through 16, it's more of turning to the victim, turning to Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, speak for yourself firsthand of the suffering that's been endured. Okay, Transition through 17, back through the grief to 18 and 22, where he continues to speak of his sorrows for what he's seen. Okay, so it's somewhat of a tongue-in-cheek analogy, but if you read it, kind of seeing that, that back-and-forth pattern that's going on there, you can kind of see that the, it's not as gritty as he gets in a, a couple chapters later. Um, it, it's a very factual 
chapter, it invokes sympathy, but the personal grief is kept away. Okay, it's almost as though uh, he's in denial or he's trying to push the events away. So then chapter 2 um, is almost kind of subheaded as connecting with reality. Uh, this is where the situation changes for the, the author. And the realization is that it was the Lord himself that brought, upon, uh, brought this destruction upon the city. You really don't see that in the in the first chapter, but it's it's made clear in the second, um, and he's in the thick of the personal memories now. If if you look in verses one through ten, it describes what the Lord has done to the city, specifically what the Lord has done. Okay, it describes uh, the devastation to the Lord in ways such as um, he has swallowed up, thrown down, profaned cut off, burned, bent his bow, destroyed, rejected, despised, abandoned. All these other things, attributes that he is putting on God for what he has done to the city. Okay. Not once in chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon mentioned. Everything is ascribed to the Lord. Okay. So these verses do not describe the permissive will of God. As though he was standing by and let this occur, but really the direct, determined will of God. Okay, and then the, mo- the raw emotion that you're starting to see is Jeremiah, who we believe to be the author, starting to deal with that. If you look at verse 11 in chapter two, it marks the point where we know that the author was actually there when this was occurring. He's just. Not, not second hand. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Okay, so where Lamentation 1 provides a hint at the reason for destruction, chapter 2 is very descriptive. Um, first focusing on what the Lord has done, and second by focusing on what He has seen. All right, so moving into chapter 3, grief becomes personal. This is a tough book, but has some fantastic uh, parts in the middle of this chapter. Um, this is where he's, the author succumbs to the events and the full weight of the grief comes crashing down on him. The first 18 verses, you can see him sinking into despair and almost into a state of depression, uh, which peaks in chapter... In, um, Verse 18, my endurance has perished, and so my hope, so has my hope from the Lord. Okay, so he's, I don't know how much worse this could get, and then flips it right around. Um, 18, let's go down to 20, 21. Therefore I have hope, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Hey, what a David back and forth kind of, where am I with my emotions? The Lord took him all the way down to rock bottom. And then in the midst of that, he said, okay, great is thy faithfulness. 
So you really couldn't have a greater contrast between verses 18 and 22. So here you start to see Jeremiah's self-pity, uh, self-centeredness starting to di- dissipate. And he turns his attention first towards the next generation, which he talks about in verses 40, um, uh, 40 through 47. And then to the community in verses 48 through 66. So in chapter 3, we do learn that the Lord shows, uh, prefers to show mercy and that what Jeremiah and the city are experiencing this time is an anomaly and not the norm. Uh, And he realizes that the Lord has shown great mercy in the past and he will do it again in the future. Chapter 4, National Confession. Here you start to see the energy coming down a little bit. We've kind of seen the peak. He's had it out. Starting to unwind a little bit, calm down. Um, The first 16 verses again recap the last days in Jerusalem. And the last verses contain words of national confession and national hope. Um, The the tears you can almost feel are starting to dry out as he's working working through it. And then in chapter 5, national prayer. It's It's a national appeal. He asked the Lord to turn his face to them and see their condition and ask that um, they be restored. Okay, and today that's still a plea for the children that are in exile is that, that restoration plea. Okay, so that's kind of walking through what's taking place in the transition between each of the five uh, chapters within the book. Well, I've got my resident Hebrew expert over here. Tell me if I butcher this too bad. Too bad. Um, Tisha Bava Bav. Which, where are you Good. You don't know either. <laughs> All right. There's a holiday, a a Jewish holiday called Tisha Bav. That's how you say it. In, uh, here? No. It's in my notes. You don't. You don't have this one. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> okay. All right, so Lamentations, the book of Lamentations still has a special place for, for the Jewish community today um, because the first temple, which stood for over 400 years, uh, was torn down in uh, 856 B.C. The second temple, which stood for 420 years, was torn down in 70 A.D., and this, the Lamentations is an annual reading, and it, the day of remembrance of the destruction of the temple is called that word, that's the Hebrew event, where they celebrate the lamenting. Okay, so it's still a part. Um, it, the book is applicable to the Gentiles, but it's, it's very applicable to the Jewish community. It, it has extra significance. They fast during that day. Um, They read in the morning uh, and again in the evening. All right, we never want to talk about the Old Testament without pointing towards whom? Exactly. Okay, where's. How how do we get Christ out of the book of Lamentations? Probably showing what's coming because almost any question you ask in the Old Testament, the one word answered is Jesus. Okay. I think if I have, it's been a while since 
You're you're on. Anybody specific with what might come in the future? Okay. Okay. Yeah, there's not. Yeah, and, and I'm not looking for the right answer. It's more of a discussion of, of what it could be pointing to. Um, I, I found uh, Luke 19, 41 through 44, um, where this weeping prophet Jeremiah was known as. Uh, in, in some of the same ways, um, has the same sorrow over the sins of the people and their rejection of God as was expressed by Jesus as he approached Jerusalem and looked ahead to her destructions at the hands of the Romans. Like that one? Raymond's on board. All right, because the Jews' reje- uh, rejection of the Messiah, God used the Roman siege to punish his people. Okay, so he takes no joy in having to punish his people. Um, and he offers Christ as a provision. Okay, so Book of Lamentations, you didn't, you didn't have Christ as a, a Savior there. Well, I was wrong about what I said. Hey, everything points to Jesus. That's what I heard. So. But, uh, I I got that mixed up with another... You're doing good. Okay, and then one day, as Revelation uh, 7.17 says, one day, uh, because of Christ, God will wipe away all tears. There's a couple ways that going in the the midst of these laments, many generations ago, you can see, uh, even in the midst of that, how Christ is is being glorified. All right, so what's the practical application of this? Even in terrible judgment, God is a God of hope. Lamentations 3 uh, in 1 John, no matter how far we've gone from Him, we have the hope that we can return to Him and find Him compassionate and forgiving. I think, too, in the Lamentations where there's no more kings. And so, in order for the Davidic covenant to be fulfilled, it's Christ will come back as king. I don't, I don't think Israel has another earthly king after Hezekiah. I could be wrong, but... I'm sorry, what was that? I think um, another king is listed in the genealogy of Christ and Matthew after Hezekiah. Interesting. I don't know. And not afraid to say that, I don't know. We'll have to go back and read the genealogies. You got it. All right, so... Those are some some generalities on how how we can apply it practically, but how do we apply it specifically? If you go back and read the book, um, there's all sorts of hurt that's being expressed and is being generated through different manners. Uh, So I'm sure that some of us have uh, experienced pain or suffering or hurt. Lots of different ways. Here's just a handful the hurt of being treated as an outcast. Chapter 4. The hurt of becoming an orphan, of being forced to do menial labor. The hurt of physical torture. The hurt of being raped in chapter in uh, chapter 5. The hurt of losing a spouse, chapter 1 and chapter 5. The hurt of falling from your respected position all throughout the book. 
They've heard of having no one to comfort you. They've heard of seeing your friends turn against you, of getting no rest for your body or your soul all throughout the book, realizing that happy fellowship times are over, seeing of your children taken away from you as you stand by helplessly. The hurt of losing your material possessions, of being mocked and despised, experiencing the um, the hurt of experiencing the lack of basic needs, hurt of having no one who understands what you're going through, chapter one verse two, hurt of seeing your children in great need, the hurt of experiencing great emotional stress, having rivals gloat over you, grieving because of tra- tragic loss. Unwilling to prevent the death of your child. Realizing too late that you have followed false teachings. thought that was interesting. The hurt of realizing that you have been the cause of the desecration or the mocking of God. And the hurt of seeing the Lord withdraw His blessings from you. All those are spelled out either uh, implicitly or indirectly uh, throughout the book, but through all those, we we learn that His grace is sufficient and that He does uh, want joy for us, not not harm. So where is God when we suffer? Jeremiah clearly understood that the Babylonians were merely the human agents by which God used. Um, it was His divine judgment. Um, so it was God Himself who destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. And we have to kind of come to grips with that. Um, so although weeping is expected, yes sir? An overviewing point that uh, you don't want to miss is the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of Jerusalem were all because of Israel's disobedience to God. Correct. Not living in obedience to Him. And I think the big answer to lamentation is we don't want that to happen to us. So better to walk a straighter path with God than live in obedience to His Word. And mm-hmm. So the, what should our proper response to judgment be? Should it be weeping? Yeah, I mean, we kind of understand why there is weeping, but what should we ultimately be doing? I think before judgment comes, we should repent when prophets come time and time again to tell us what's in store for us. Well, we've been told. I mean, in fact, in Jeremiah 29, I mean, it was spelled out what was going to happen. Right. They didn't take heed. But God still says in I said life is the Luther repentance uh, life is one full of repentance um, you've already had the judgment is, uh, all this evil is going around and you're a believer you have to uh, I think you're supposed to accept it and uh, still praise God your yes you're familiar with the open theists 
It's a, it's a movement where they assert just the goodness of God, but not the just of God. Um, and really, for all their compassion, they, they rob, their theology robs us of uh, the depth and mysteriousness of God, of his power, of his sovereignty. Uh, they paint a picture of a God who let things slip through. Uh, he, he doesn't have co- complete control. He limits his authority. Um, and is not truly sovereign. Um, so if that's the case, if he's not truly sovereign over anything, then, then how does Psalm 46.1 apply where um, he's present, very present, help in trouble. Um, he's not able to answer our prayers or be a shield. Those who take refuge in, as in Proverbs 30 says. And in tough times, we need a friend who will bring us the hope and comfort that we have in a good and sovereign God who's working all things out, even suffering for the good of those who love him, Romans 20, uh, eight twenty eight. So kind of what the point I was trying to drive out is through the book of Lamentations, and I think what Jeremiah was saying as well is through all the suffering, um, I'm still holding on to you, God. Um, you're always enough for me. And... Uh, the Bible is certain whenever there's suffering, when there's unanswered prayers, uh, we can be sure that the Heavenly Father is in control and has a loving purpose in it. Um, and if we are living outside of God's will, that's where the, the prayer, repent, um, should come before the, the rebuke comes. Right? No one wants to uh, be standing in the position that Jeremiah did. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. 